0: This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here right now on The Law School Show. Hello everybody. Welcome to The Law School Show podcast. My name is Nicole McDermott. I am a first year law student at U Ottawa. Today I'm here with Caitlin Baldwin, an addictions counselor. And today we're going to be discussing the interaction of the legal world with mental health and addictions. So if you want to just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you do. So I primarily do outpatient
1: counseling. So I meet with clients about every two to three weeks. And uh, what we do is we initially start with an assessment. Um, We'll kind of figure out where they're at in terms of one, their substance use, but two, you know, various other life areas like mental health, physical health, work problems, etc. And then we kind of decide on specific goals that we want to work on. So some people may come in with the goal of abstinence, they want to be completely sober from a substance. So we kind of discuss what challenges are in the way of that and how we can overcome them. Other people come in with goals that are more about harm reduction. So where they're still using a substance, but in a, a much less harmful way. So maybe they're reducing their amount or they're trying to do it in safer ways. And then we kind of continue working on these goals until the client decides that they've had enough
0: essentially. And so it's up to them really to to choose their path.
1: Yeah, our agency and I think really the whole field of counseling in general is a client-centered approach now. So it's very much that the client is the expert in their own life. They're the ones who decide what directions we go in or what goals they want to have because it's not our job to push our values or our beliefs on them. We really just try and get a good grasp of where they're at and where they want to be and just try and help facilitate the goals moving in that direction.
0: So I guess we'll just kind of hop right in I want to discuss how you think that your job interacts with the legal world, because mental health has become such an important factor in the world, but a lot of people seem to still stigmatize these addictions, which is a mental health issue. Yeah. Do you want to discuss a little bit about that, how it is not a choice?
1: Yeah, so for a bit of background, it's really difficult to differentiate addictions and mental health. So for a really long time, the two were treated very separately. Mental health was treated in a very kind of biological or medical way so often by like doctors psychiatrists stuff like that and addictions or substance use issues was um, treated by things like peer support so stuff like Mm. aa groups or na and the two sectors were very segregated but what's important to note is that they often come hand in hand the prevalence of them co-occurring is like one in five. So it's usually, you know, that a mental health disorder would be causing a substance use problem or a substance use problem is exacerbating mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the stigma that's still around it, it's really unfortunate because we've seen a lot of progress in the mental health sector and people becoming a lot more understanding and a lot more educated on mental health and how that can impact someone but from our lens we see a lot of people with addictions issues or substance use issues that are still very much one criminalized which is often Mm -hmm. how they get into the legal system and then two judged for the accountability so mental health there's kind of been a push off of it being the person's fault. However, substance use is still very much seen as as a personal choice and as a personal fault.
0: Yes, and I think that is becoming more and more obvious to the public, but still stigmatized. People see a lot of, like, even the homeless population, especially in Ottawa, it's, it's a very prevalent issue, and a lot of people just stigmatize these addictions as this is someone's choice. Yes. And like you said, bringing it back to the legal world it's criminalized and these these people are i guess being being targeted by the legal system for their for their health issue it is a health issue
1: yeah for sure like so if someone wasn't going to work because they were depressed you know, there'd be like mediations made around that, but it wouldn't be something seen as like a criminal issue or something you know really looked down upon. but if someone's missing work because of their addiction and i and I really don't like the word addiction in itself, but mm. because of substance use, it's viewed very, very differently, where you know mental health and so keeping with the example of depression, like that's something that you're kind of continuously working on. but it's mm. almost like as soon as substances are brought into it, it's it's no longer a, you know, lengthful recovery where it's like, okay, we, we understand that this is going to take time for you to move past it. It's very much like, oh, if you have a substance use issue, then you need to get that over with mm-hmm. and sort it out right away.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's a huge <clears throat> thing too. You see a lot of people just expecting them to just get over it, snap yeah. out of it. Yeah. And that's not the case. These substances are, are addictive and it's not something that could just be cured overnight, which is, even if they do get over that- they're still criminalized and stigmatized because of that.
1: Yeah, something that we really really talk about is the fact that recovery is a lifelong process. So, mm-hmm. I have I have quite a few clients who are involved with the legal system, so whether it be like probation parole and depending on the severity of their charges or the or the conditions of their probation, sometimes their probation officers will, you know, contact me and they'll say, "Okay, this person, you know, has has substance use problems, they need to go to residential treatment." So, mm. and that's like the most intensive form of substance use treatment. And they kind of demand that and they say that this is a condition of this person's release.
0: Mm. But
1: the issue is that one, you know, even if this person has substance use issues, they may not be at a level of severity that actually requires that. So that would actually indicate that they need residential treatment. Mm. And more importantly, that person may not be at a stage of readiness to even do that. So one thing that we talk about a lot are the stages of change. So there's kind of this model that says we as counselors and as anyone within like addictions and mental health, we need to meet clients where they're at in terms of readiness. So some people... They may have issues with substance use, but they haven't yet acknowledged that and they haven't realized it. Mm-hmm. And so that person wouldn't be ready to take any steps to make changes. So with a person like that, if you tell them, you know, hey, you need to go to residential treatment, it's probably just going to force them in the opposite direction. They're going to get very defensive. Yeah. Whereas other people, you know, they may be in a contemplative stage of change where they've recognize that they do have an issue, but maybe they're just not ready to take those steps yet, or they don't know where to go. And the issue with these demands or requirements of a release, so on probation or parole is that, It's very forceful, and so it doesn't allow the client themselves to kind of go through that journey of the healing and Mm -hmm. and recognizing there's a problem, deciding to make changes, you know, preparing themselves, actually taking action. It's very much, okay, this is your condition, this is what you're doing, and there's no Mm -hmm. client say in it, there isn't any autonomy on their end, Mm -hmm. it's just... A forceful thing and it's going to be less beneficial to them and usually less successful when they're forced into it rather than
0: when they're choosing to go to treatment on their own. Yeah so these structures that are put in place within the legal system especially are are not conducive to helping these people it's actually harming them in a way that they become repeat quote-unquote offenders. Yeah. What do you think about the legal system and how that treatment of these people do you think there's room for progress do you think anything is successful right now? Um, I think there needs to be
1: better unity between professionals in the legal system. So whether that's like lawyers, probation officers, um, whatever it may be, and the people who are providing services for the client, so like myself. So with my clients who are on probation or parole, I do typically have contact with those legal members, Okay. Um, but it's very minimal. And it would be great if we had a lot more consultation mm-hmm. because, so again, like going back to the example of, referring someone to residential treatment a lot of people think that that's that's the stereotype of treatment for substance use so that's what they
0: see on shows like intervention and they're like yeah Mm -hmm. that's where people go if they want to get fixed and can you just explain what this residential progress like what are the structures in place for those who are criminalized for these addictions so if people are released like obviously they can't go to residential
1: treatment if they're in jail Mm -hmm. um but so if they're released most treatment facilities will take people with criminal records um excluding stuff like some sexual assault charges or, or arson charges or whatever Mm. the idea is that if their initial charge was or had substance use as a factor so let's Mm -hmm. say someone had an impaired driving charge or let's say someone had a, a physical assault that was on a night of intoxication then something to do with substance use will usually be a part of their release okay so residential treatment is it's a type of treatment where people will go in and it's usually for a minimum of three weeks up to a few months, but that's in kind of really, really severe cases, mm-hmm. where they'll go to this you know segregated facility. They live there. They do programming every single day, and so they'll work on issues of substance use and mental health. And then there's a lot of work on kind of reestablishing them into the community. But facilities like that one cost a huge amount of resources, and so a lot of them, for that reason, are paid. So the issue with that is that a lot of people who are low income, um, which is you know, a subclass of people that are often involved with the legal system, mm-hmm. they kind of have to exclude a lot of options for treatment if that's something that they're interested in because yes. they literally just can't afford it. Yeah. So then the ones that are free, they have huge wait list times, you know, spanning from at very, very minimum a few weeks to up to 10 months wow. um, of a wait to go into this place because, again, it's a very, very intensive type of treatment. And so the issue with, That being a condition of release is that if this client really doesn't need it, then we shouldn't refer them to a high-intensity program and possibly make another client who's more in need of it Mm -hmm. have to wait longer. Yeah, And putting them into that high-intensity environment, if they don't really need it, it may do them more harm than good. Yeah. Because if they have a stable home life, if they have a stable home environment where they can do well, they can reestablish themselves into the community and maybe would just be better suited working on substance use stuff in individual counseling rather than mm-hmm. being in a full-on residential center, that would be much better for them. But again, with this idea that residential treatment is the only type of treatment there is it's often included as someone's release conditions. And in my experience, at least, there hasn't been a ton of understanding on the other end. So on the part of the legal staff that say, this is the part of their conditions, and they kind of just say, we just have to do it because Mm -hmm. there's no way of getting around it. But it's not often the case that they really need
0: that level of treatment. Yeah. And I think that's to speak a little bit to that issue, do not not to get too off track, but that speaks a lot to the prison system as well. And the whole issue of these people are not being treated for their, their health issue. They're being criminalized, put in prison, institutionalized, and basically ignored. Do you think that affects people in recriminalization and recidivism? Yeah. So I I had a workshop a few months ago
1: through my agency and the speaker that was presenting, she had a really, really good quote that said, Punishment doesn't create change. It creates compliance. Mm. So putting someone into a prison for a drug charge or for something that's substance use related, it doesn't really entice change in many people. There are some cases that it will kind of light that fire under them and they'll, Mm -hmm. they'll want to make those changes. But for the most part it doesn't. It just, it creates that compliance. Mm -hmm. And a really, really big issue with that is that, yeah, they're not being treated. So if the primary reason why they were using was because they really struggle with depression, like maybe they lost their partner in the past year and that you know, using alcohol is, like, their method of coping, Mm -hmm. they may leave jail or prison and go right back to that because they still haven't found a better way to cope with it. Mm. Um, But the other really, really big issue with just criminalizing and and putting people in institutions rather than um, treating them and rather than looking at the reason why they're using is that the overdose rate for people who are incarcerated after they are released is huge. Because, so for things like opiates... Fentanyl obviously being the biggest one and the biggest problem that we're currently facing.
0: Yeah.
1: Let's say someone is using fentanyl on a regular basis and then they go to jail for for whatever type of charge. They are forced to go through the withdrawals in jail, which is really, really taxing on the body and I don't think people understand how serious it really is. Mm -hmm. But they have medical staff at the jail and that's fine. So they, they get through it, they do their stay, and then they come out. And if they're coming out with the intention of using again, they may go back to using the exact same amount that they had used before before incarceration. Yeah. And you know, if they were in there for a few months, they may come out, use that same amount and overdose. Yeah, and, that's and die. Something I didn't even consider. And it's I don't know what the exact figures are, but the likelihood of that happening is huge mm. for people who are incarcerated because if it's not treated and if they're still stuck in those substance use patterns um, and they've had this really long period of abstinence where they didn't really wean themselves off they didn't learn other ways to manage their cravings or to deal with triggers or anything like that these people are often coming back out of incarceration into those home environments where maybe their peers use substances a lot maybe it was a very big part of their home life so maybe they're living in you know rooming houses where other people in the facility are also using maybe at work A lot of their uh, co-workers use so there's a lot of triggers in the real world when they're kind of reaccustomed to that or Mm -hmm. or put back into the community and without learning how to deal with that they'll often go back to using because Mm -hmm. they haven't been taught the skills of how to deal with it and how to manage it in a healthy way and then they overdose Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a really really unfortunate epidemic that the mental health field has been really trying to push away from criminalization and away from incarcerating these individuals but it's a very very slow-moving it is train.
0: everything seems to be very slow moving yes in the legal world unfortunately yeah to speak a little bit to your clients do they recognize these issues do you think when you when you were discussing with them their readiness do you think that they recognize these troubles within the the legal world do they recognize that they're being marginalized as this group of people like do they do they recognize that do you think um, I, I think it depends on the individual, but I've definitely had a lot of clients
1: tell me that they feel like they're not being heard. You know, once you're kind of labeled as an addict, and again, I, yeah. I hate that word, but that's what's used. Um, once they have that label on them, it's almost like they feel like they don't have a voice. So, mm-hmm. in situations like that, where, yeah, maybe there's a substance use related charge, they come out, they're now on probation. And again, you know, it depends on the probation officer and and who they're working with because every individual is different, but they have expressed that they feel really marginalized and almost feel like they can't advocate for themselves. So um, I've actually acted as an advocate for a lot of clients because one, it can be really intimidating just in terms of the power differential of, you know, being a client compared to a lawyer, right? And again, thinking back to people who are like low income or possibly you know struggling with homelessness, like there's a very big divide between that client and their lawyer or their probation officer. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: So they may not feel comfortable really standing up for themselves and saying, you know, no, I don't need this. Or yes, this is what I need. This is what I want. And so I've acted as an advocate for quite a few clients on that end. Mm -hmm. Um, One, to really express where the client's at in terms of readiness. So if they feel like they're ready to go to any type of treatment, Mm because again like with something like residential, I could by all means refer a client, but if they're not ready to go there, then they're not going to go there. Yeah. Um, so readiness is something that I really talk about with their their legal staff. And then another thing is what the best fit of treatment is. Mm-hmm. Um so at my agency we use a clinical assessment called the GAIN. It's the Global Appraisal of Individual Needs. Okay. And so in that, it's really lengthy. Um, it's a million and one questions long. Mm. <laughs> but it's we use it because we look at what type of problems substance use has caused in their life. So whether it's been um, problems that are getting in the way of work, or whether it's been problems with relationships, or You know problems with like self-control or whatever it is and then we also ask them about their readiness like how ready do you feel to make changes here what are your main reasons for wanting to make changes and really putting it back on them and from that assessment we we get uh we get a few reports that come out of the game but one of them that's really important is the diagnostic impressions so the dsm-5 I'm not sure. I don't think most people would know what that is. Not a clue. (laughs) That's okay. Um, It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So it's essentially the Bible for psychology. It has every single mental health disorder ever. There's kind of three different parts to it. And then there's all these different categories where certain ones are listed. So there's like depressive types of disorders. So major depression obviously being the biggest one. There's anxiety-based disorders. um, And it breaks it down. But there is a class of disorders that are substance use disorders. Again, highlighting the fact that substance use is a mental health disorder yeah. it's not it's not something that's separate but so what we get out of this gain is this report that suggests because you know not being a psychologist i can't give someone a diagnosis mm-hmm. but it will suggest this person has a severe alcohol use disorder or this person has a mild opiate use disorder and so from that report we can kind of see okay, if this person has a really, really severe disorder, then yeah, we're going to recommend something that's more intensive, like residential treatment. Mm -hmm. If this person is, you know, mild to moderate, maybe we'll just recommend that they go to individual counseling or something that's less intensive, like a day program. And so that's something really, really useful that we try and also show Mm
0: -hmm. probation officers
1: or lawyers, like some oftentimes I'll send them these assessment reports, so that it's not only, you know, my opinion, but it's this clinical valid assessment that has has its merit has its merit yeah Yeah. they can actually look at it and see okay maybe this thing that
0: we're suggesting isn't the best fit but this is what they could benefit from Mm -hmm. and do you think that they follow this advice or do they ignore it has there been cases like that i've had hit and miss i've had i've worked with some probation officers who have been
1: really really lovely you know they look at the client's case and they recognize like this person doesn't really have problems with substance use it was maybe just kind of a one off event mm. so for example like you know someone may have been able to drink normally and without issue for all of their life but then one time they got really intoxicated and got into a fight with someone mm-hmm. you know for that person it may be a a requirement of their release to participate in some sort of program but if this person has had one issue with alcohol in their entire life then we're not going to send them to residential yeah of course so with some probation officers I've been able to really talk to them about you know okay this person can maybe come to like a few sessions really just to talk about the event see if there are any other challenges but for the most part this person seems to be doing well and seems to be really functioning and then on the other hand I've had other members of the legal system lawyers and probation officers or or parole officers included where I've made these recommendations and stated you know the client isn't ready for that level of intensity or you know based on what the client has said, like they really don't need this level of treatment and it's been ignored. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very much a new versus old mindset. The older mindset being that, you know, addictions is a... Self-generated problem, yeah, and that it's kind of like the expert novice mentality, where the the lawyer, or the probation officer, may think that they know best, mm-hmm. and that whatever they say goes. Whereas I think people who people who are newer or have adapted a um, fresher look on addictions and mental health have been able to recognize, like, no, okay, the client knows what's best for them, yeah, and even though we have to. Meet these certain requirements. There's still some flexibility to make sure that it's actually worthwhile, rather mm-hmm. than you know just referring to someone to treatment to go through the motions.
0: Yeah, and, and these are adults we're dealing with. This is not. Yeah, uh, you see a lot of paternalistic behavior with the legal system as well. For sure. And and you're seeing these people basically treated like children. Yeah. And, and told how to live their lives. Yeah, even
1: on even on phone conversations, I've had interactions like that, where, you know, a client called me from their lawyer's office, because they may have missed an appointment. And so they're calling back to reschedule. And, you know, it's very select instances, but I've heard their lawyers talking to them in a very punitive De- demeaning. Manner. And, yeah. And, yeah. And it's really upsetting, because people with substance use problems they're usually facing that stigma in a lot of different areas Mm -hmm. and it sucks that people who are supposed to be within their support network like their lawyers will treat them in that fashion because they are supposed to be people who are in their corner Mm -hmm. and to be treated like they don't know what's like the clients don't know what what's best for them um can be yeah even, even more demeaning and usually contribute to lower
0: self-worth. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just to, to swing it around here. So mm. you sound like you have a lot of interaction with the legal sphere. Yeah. And have you yourself or do you know if any counseling is available within prisons? Have you ever gone to a prison? Do you know if that's a thing or do you think it should be if it doesn't exist?
1: I don't think that it is. So things like halfway houses, which I don't really even know what the correct term for that is. But so, you know, after clients leave um, jail or prison and they go to a a halfway house, I know that some of them have programs for addictions and substance use, but nothing actually in the system, really. Not to my knowledge, which is really unfortunate. And so it may be if there is any involvement there, it may be like that they're able to meet with a psychologist or a counselor on an infrequent basis, but I don't think that there's regular programming. There are other options. So, you know, if someone is possibly facing a jail sentence, I believe that there are, you know, facilities within Ontario that are kind of a combination of like substance use treatment and a jail. So it's kind of more of like a high security place where they're not allowed to leave. They don't really have They would have kind of the same strict guidelines and responsibilities as if they were in jail, but it's a treatment center, but within jails themselves, nothing that I've been
0: made aware of. So clearly there's a lot of room for improvement. Yes. Basically. Yeah. (laughs) To put it point blank. For sure. Personally, I think that would be very beneficial to have within, because we do have to to kind of speak to the lack of availability of resources, again, and financial aid and whatnot. We do have like legal clinics and things like that. Like Ottawa University has this amazing community legal clinic. Yeah. But even these resources are hard to attain sometimes because things like legal aid, you have to reach certain thresholds of, Mm -hmm. you know, income and whatnot. What do you think could be done about that? Should these services be free? Not necessarily free because obviously it's, it's hard work and it's very taxing. What can be done? What do you think? I mean...
1: It's difficult because there's there's so much that goes into big systemic changes like that. Mm. The funding for jails, and that's coming from taxpayers. And so, you know, if a proposal was made that we're going to have counselors, you know, or 24-7 addictions and mental health staff available Mm -hmm. in these facilities, like, there'd be an uproar yeah, <laughs> um, because I don't want to pay my tax dollars to support this person's drug habit yeah. is the opinions that would come out. So there's, there's definitely ideas and stuff that people have been trying to push because that is something that we know would be beneficial, right? Like if you're going to sentence someone, then at least have them work on these problems while they're in there. But yeah, there's just – there's so much – funding that we need to come from it, um, it would need to be a publicly funded thing because it's very unlikely that, you know, one of the inmates would, like, would pay for that service. Of course, yeah. Um, And there's, you know, there's a lot of, like, security issues as well, like, going into an environment like that and Mm -hmm. putting the counselor or the psychologist's safety at risk. And so it's difficult to say because there's so much that could be done and there's so much that would be beneficial, but the reality of it actually getting there is... Like none, <laughs> yeah. um, at least you know within the next five years or so, and it and it is something that's being pushed, but there's a lot of backlash from the public just because there there isn't as much education, mm-hmm. um, public education on substance use as there is on mental health. And, yeah. you know, like I said at the beginning, there's much more acceptance now, you know, especially compared to 10 years ago, but there's much more acceptance now of, of mental health issues, but really not so much of substance use issues. Mm-hmm. So trying to, you know, sway the public opinion of this being a good thing and a thing that's that's worth that extra money, it, it would be a battle for
0: sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so with this lack of resources... How do you think that the system can work more integrated and collectively addressing these issues? How do you see this progressing? Usually, people who are involved in the legal system, like that's not the only
1: service that they need. So, Mm -hmm. they may also be involved with addictions counseling, they may also be involved with child welfare services like CAS. You know, maybe they have a family doctor and they have like a really bad medical condition that's you know, kind of another factor within their lives. So there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen between these services. Mm -hmm. A really big issue that we see is kind of a duplication of services. So for clients who are really, really high needs, they're involved in those multiple different sectors where they need that support from people, we can kind of see a duplication where they may be going to their lawyers and trying to discuss their child welfare issues, and then also going to their addictions counselors and talking about their child welfare issues and then also talking to their doctor about their child welfare issues mm-hmm. and so for clients where maybe they don't have a lot of stability or they don't have the resources themselves to be able to keep on track of all the things that they have to do because mm-hmm. like as we know when you're involved in this system there's a ton of Know, oh, it's a a disaster. Deadlines. Yeah. There <laughs> there are so many things that you have to do. It's like having to call and make a dentist appointment every single yeah. day of your life. It's very complicated. Yeah.
0: Um and confusing for a lot of people too. They, for sure. When you're thrown into this system, you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. A lot of people are completely in the dark. Yeah. And this. especially when like stress levels are really, really high,
1: which they would be if, you know, you just came out of jail. Yeah. Or of or, or whatever. Your ability to like function isn't really at its highest. So oh. being able to remember all of these things court dates, phone calls, people, your ability to do that is much lower than it usually would be regardless. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy for people to lose track of stuff. I've had it happen a lot of times where people will no show their first appointment with me because they just have so much other stuff going on. Um, So for the clients who are really, really high needs and maybe don't have that ability to keep on track of stuff on their own. Our agency has recently begun this pilot project of this organization called Health Links And so um, we're doing something called an integrated care plan for those really, really high needs clients. So these Mm -hmm. are people, like I said before, where they're getting a big duplication of services and they're taking up a lot of resources. These may be people that visit the emergency room a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe people who have been in addictions counseling for a long time, but it it seems like they haven't really made any legitimate progress. Mm -hmm. For these people, rather than, you know, trying to tell them, okay, in our addictions counseling sessions here we're going to talk about your substance use and your mental health and then anything else anything to do with your lawyer like that's on you you have to mm-hmm. go talk to them about it for these people we can kind of act as advocates for them mm-hmm. so health links it's something that's they've had for a really long time but they've kind of recently tried to renew it and so that's why we're in the piloting stage now but what they've essentially done is created this one platform electronically this one website where all of these support members in a person's life can be connected and can mm-hmm. see what each individual is working on. So for example, if someone just left jail and you know now they're on probation, they will have a probation officer in their corner. They may be seeing myself for addictions counseling. They may also be involved with child welfare services, so they'll have a child welfare worker, you know, like a doctor. Mm -hmm. So those four people would be on their support team or their integrated care team. And if their substance use seems to be the biggest issue, then I would be the lead on Mm -hmm. that team. So I would kind of be the primary contact for that client. So then that way, this client doesn't have to think about and try and keep track of talking to four different people. Mm -hmm. If they don't know when their next doctor's appointment is, If they are not sure what their probation requirements are, they can't remember their probation officer's name, they can contact me Mm -hmm. and I can kind of be that advocate to keep them connected. Because what we see with a lot of clients is that they fall through the cracks in different areas. Mm -hmm. Because there's kind of this disconnect between services and especially between like myself and the legal system, Mm -hmm. it can be hard for them if their lawyer says, you know, okay, go contact your counselor Mm -hmm. because they may forget they may not know what to even approach me about they may just kind of feel lost and like they're not in control of their own situation Mm -hmm. but having this integrated care plan for these really high needs or high risk clients is a way to keep them all connected, make sure that there isn't a duplication of services and that each service is doing the appropriate work. So Mm -hmm. meetings with their lawyer, they're going to focus on their legal matters, what needs to be done for their probation or for their upcoming court case or whatever it is. And with their addictions counsellors, they're going to be focusing on their substance use goals.
0: Yeah. So you see a lot of these duplication of services you're talking about. Do you see these lawyers kind of doing a double duty and acting as counsellors in a way?
1: For sure. Yeah a lot of people will come in in crisis and I think that just as easily as clients can come into my office and just kind of unload they can definitely and they do definitely do that with their lawyers as well because Mm -hmm. we are you know even though my role and a lawyer's role is very very different we're both support members Mm -hmm. for this
0: client and that can be very taxing on the professionals dealing with this as well like lawyers the counselors themselves yeah. everybody. It's a very, very difficult thing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, if a client's next appointment with me isn't for two or three weeks, but they're meeting with their lawyer tomorrow and they just had a crisis, like maybe their child was literally just taken by child welfare, mm-hmm. they're probably going to go into that meeting with their lawyer freaking out about that rather than, you know, being calm and yeah. discussing the matters at hand, right? So the, the lawyers or, or probation officers or any of the legal
0: staff can take on a lot of that weight as well because these yeah. are very weighted issues. Oh, of course. Funnily enough, I had a discussion with a lawyer who worked in the legal aid sphere and she said that they had a designated crying corner that they would go to. Oh my god. Because of these difficult, really, really difficult things for lawyers, you know, to mm-hmm. see these people and you're trying to help them and, and sometimes you can't help them. Yeah. Um so there is coping mechanisms for lawyers as well and sometimes that is substance abuse as well. See so you-
1: For sure. Yeah. Um, A topic that's really, really important to discuss within like the helping services field. And I think that encompasses any legal staff as as well as um, people in my own position Mm -hmm. is the issue of vicarious trauma. So we like we get people that come in with these really traumatic stories, whether it was that they were victims of assault, whether it's that they had a really, really negative, significant event, like someone passing, and clients come in in crisis, or with very, very high and intense emotions, it's really difficult for us to not take that on. Yeah. lawyers especially like yeah it's it's a huge amount of stress because they're supposed to be the people that will get them out of it. We're we're the fixers. The fixers, right? Yeah. Yeah, The people that are going to help them out of this crap situation, keep them out of jail, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. a huge source of stress. So lawyers for sure, like the stress level there can be massively high. Mm -hmm. And I think substance use for anyone is a really, really big coping mechanism. Yeah. For stress. That's what a lot of my clients come in with, right? A lot of my clients you know, they didn't set out to be alcoholics. Of course not. And I hate that word as well, but they would be the type of people where maybe they had a really high stress job and they'd come home at the end of the day and have a beer or two or three mm. or four and it ended up becoming such a pattern that it became problematic. Yeah. And the issue is that substance user especially alcohol, but really any type of substance is such an easy way to quote cope with Mm -hmm. that stuff because it just kind of takes those problems away for a little bit or helps you unwind at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't actually solve the root of it. And it can definitely lead to issues for not just low income people, but professionals like people who are high income people Mm -hmm. who may be really, really well established in their field. Substance use doesn't have a discriminating eye. It's not only going to stick to the Ghetto, it's involved everywhere and I think a lot of people don't recognize that like it can happen to anybody for sure it does happen to everybody even like thinking back to you know the old days when like crack was a really big issue in the media they tried to say that it was primarily black and low-income populations that were using crack but it actually there was a I, I don't remember the authors of it but there's a really big meta-analysis that kind of looked at the prevalence rates of like crack use because mm-hmm. it it's supposed to be a cheaper drug
0: um
1: quote unquote quote unquote yeah (laughs) and it was actually like 57 percent of users were middle to upper class white men (laughs) and the the idea that yeah substance use is kind of kept in this you know low-income ghetto corner Mm -hmm. um, is not realistic at all because and we see it like with celebrities like oh yeah that happens all the time and you can probably believe that one it's a part of the party lifestyle but two it's a way to overcome the stress of the job being in the public eye and whatnot for sure like substance use is the quickest and easiest way to deal with stress Mm -hmm. but
0: obviously it's not the healthy way of course not. No, in, in our orientation for law school, actually, they kind of addressed this pervasive issue of substance abuse in the legal field. And they were kind of giving us this talk about the resources available to us. Addictions counseling wasn't on the table, funnily enough. Mm. Yeah, they the fact that it is a pervasive issue in lawyers and not just these as you say, like underprivileged members of society, like it's important to address as well. Honestly, I see it so much with alcohol. I think right now I have a caseload
1: of about 65 clients and I want to say that, yeah. But (laughs) it's heavy for you too. Like it's very heavy. For sure. And so I, I'm really, really privileged because I talk about coping mechanisms all day, every day. And so I know to watch myself. Mm -hmm. I know to make sure that I'm, you know, if I do go home and have a beer at the end of the day, that I'm not doing it as my only way to deal with stress. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it because, you know, maybe I just want a beer, but I'm also going to take a long walk to unwind, Mm -hmm. or I'm also going to, you know, do yoga to unwind. Yeah. And so the vast majority of my clients, like probably 60 to 70%, their drug of choice is alcohol. And most commonly for the reason of, going home unwinding with a beer that ends up turning into multiple beers Mm -hmm. and that being the primary method of coping. That's something that I really, really try and stress with clients and especially those who if they're not ready to have a goal of abstinence and you know they've just recognized that their drinking is out of hand but they want to cut it back. I really just try and start with the goal of if alcohol is your way to deal with stress, your way to unwind at the end of the day, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But let's implement other methods as well because yeah. for a lot of people and i think you know for lawyers in a really really high stress environment it's easy for alcohol to be the only coping Mm -hmm. mechanism Uh, the only stress reliever and I really really push implementing others so having something that's completely separate from substance use that's going to give you that same unwind Mm -hmm. because if alcohol is the only thing that gives you that then it's very easy for that use to become abuse Mm -hmm. Um, and for you to become reliant on that or think that it's the only way To
0: decrease your stress, to Mm -hmm. unwind at the end of the day, rather than implementing other things, Mm -hmm. I think that's. uh, If you just want to speak to our 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 listeners about some of the resources available, hotlines, things, I think the one that would be the most
1: universal is a really really good website. It's called TherapistAid.com. So it's a resource that I and a lot of my colleagues will use, but it's really just like chock full of worksheets Mm -hmm. so it sounds kind of weird to have worksheets for something like substance use but something that I really try and kind of drive home to people is that dealing with these types of issues like learning coping skills learning how to manage your mental health you know learning how to think positively it's something that needs to be practiced Mm -hmm. just like you know doing free throws or whatever like yeah <laughs> it's, it's not something that we're taught and it's not something that we inherently have so it is something that needs to be learned and practiced over and over mm-hmm. for you to be good at it yeah so therapist aid is a really really good website because you can there's a even a search bar at the top and so if you're a person who really struggles with anxiety or even more specifically like social anxiety mm-hmm. you can type social anxiety into it and there will you know wow. 10 different worksheets will pop up so some of some of them are more educational where there isn't really much to fill in on your own but other things will be much more interactive so with social anxiety as an example I think one of the worksheets says you know it gives like a little blank line it says okay what's what's the situation that's causing you anxiety what's the worst possible outcome because social anxiety has a really big correlation with substance use because a lot of people will will drink or use mm-hmm. drugs to cope with social situations, right? To be Mm -hmm. able to fit in, to be able to feel more comfortable around a crowd. Mm -hmm. Like we've all been there. For sure. (laughs) And this worksheet's really good because it'll say, okay, if if you're stressed out about going to this party, if that's like the situation that's causing you anxiety, um, it'll say, what's the worst likely outcome? And you can kind of write it in. And what's good about even just writing stuff or saying stuff out loud is that it really consolidates the information more so than just thinking stuff. Mm -hmm. Like you because if you're feeling anxious about going to a party, you're probably also thinking to yourself like, hey, this is silly. I don't need to be anxious Mm -hmm. about going here. But there's a big difference in how you feel um, when you just think that stuff rather than when you actually write it out.
0: Yeah. So Uh, is is this a free resource? This is a free resource. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And it's
1: awesome. And again, like topics ranging from anything, but the social anxiety piece, it may, you know, say, what's the worst likely outcome? And you Mm -hmm. could write out you know, I'm gonna be embarrassed and all these people at this party are gonna laugh at me. Mm-hmm. And then it'll say, what's the best possible outcome? it be, you know, you go that maybe you go to this party and every single person loves you and they want to be your friend. Mm-hmm. And then it'll ask what's the most likely outcome? Probably being that you're gonna go, you'll you'll be with your friends, you'll have a good time, nothing significant is really gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And so that's one example, but these worksheets are really useful in breaking down these kind of really complex and difficult issues or, or big weighted issues like depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. substance use, yeah. and breaking them down into small incremental steps that you can actually work through. Yeah. So um, therapist aid being the, the best one that I think is universal and free to access. But other than that, I think if you do feel like you're struggling with substance use, like even just doing a quick Google search to see if there is substance use supports in your area. Mm-hmm. So if you're... A person who, you know, is adhering to, like, abstinence and and trying to be free from substances and you think that AA or NA groups would be something that would be helpful for you, Mm -hmm. they are all over the place. Like, there's many, many groups that meet in every single city every single day of the week. So that's always accessible to you. Other things, like, if... I think the biggest thing is just being aware of where you're at. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a place where other people are telling you that your substance use is an issue, but you're not ready for it, trying to really be clear with them about how they can support you because it can be really Mm -hmm. demeaning if you're in a spot where you're not ready to make changes and everyone's just kind of getting mad at you or or saying that you don't care. Mm -hmm. So being clear with the people who are in your life and then if you you are ready to make changes and, you know, maybe you want to start reducing your users or start trying to be abstinent from a substance, involving the people in your life in that. So Mm -hmm. if it's an example where your drug of choice is cocaine and you would often use that with your friends or they would often offer that to you, but you're trying to cut back or you're trying to stop using, tell your friends that. Tell Mm -hmm. them that, you know, hey, that's fine if you guys do it, but please don't offer it to me. Mm -hmm. Involve them in your choices and and in your changes, because that's going to be a lot easier for you to stick to those goals rather than Mm. trying to do everything on your own. Because the people in your life and your support systems, they do care about you and they do want to help you. Mm -hmm. It's often just that they need to be informed of if you're making changes and how they can really help you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that'd be really just trying to investigate what sources are in your area. Um, And so even if counseling or like specific groups aren't your thing in any district there will be a hotline of sorts so kind of a crisis hotline which a lot of people will think is only for you know suicide but it's not it's it's if you feel like you're in a crisis that could be you having a panic attack that could be you just really not knowing where to go Mm -hmm. so they can give you those resources as well for sure yeah yeah crisis lines are really good at connecting you with those extra resources if you don't know where they are
0: fantastic yeah Thank you so much. This yeah. has been fantastic, really enlightening. Um, I think it's a, a very good start to opening the discussion. For sure. So I want to thank you again for coming today, Keith and Baldwin. And we'll see you next time. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or at our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook and get the latest updates from The Law School Show. Career Advancing Advice, right to your earbuds.